Art of the Cut is brought to you by FilmTools.com, your one-stop shop for production and post-production gear. Be sure to listen for an exclusive site-wide offer later in the show. Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today on Art of the Cut, we'll be hearing from Andrew Monsheen, ACE, who edited the recently released Netflix production, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, a film based on August Wilson's Pulitzer Prize winning play. Andrew has had an illustrious career, editing since 1984 on films like Desperately Seeking Susan, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, The Sixth Sense, Cider House Rules, Chocolat, The Mummy, and American Maid. He was nominated for Ace Eddie's for The Sixth Sense and Chocolat and for an Oscar for The Sixth Sense. It's really interesting. When I was looking at your IMDb, mm-hmm. there are two movies that I've actually got a bunch of clips for because I'm working on another project of my own, kind of a almost a hobby thing, where I'm doing a documentary series based on what is real and what is real about the movies, what is real and what is manufactured. Right. And two of the movies that I've looked at are American Made and The Mummy, Really? You know, <laughs> a real life story. And then, you know, what's true about mummies? Obviously, they're not alive, but right. how much of the archaeology, how much of the science, all that stuff is real. So looking at your IMDb, you've got a stellar career of great movies. What made you the editor for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom? How did that happen? And why do you think you were the choice? Ah, interesting question. Well, I know that Denzel and Todd had worked with other editors, and Denzel had a different editor on Fences, and I had not been interviewed for that. I understand, I heard from both Denzel and Todd that an editor they'd worked with, Hugh Winborn, had recommended me. He had come on to American Made at that time when it was on pause for a little bit, and then when I came back, and I actually worked on something that he had also worked on. So we had crossed paths and spoken, but we'd never worked together on a film at the same time. But apparently he gave a a recommendation, and they called me to interview with George Wolfe, who directed it. You know, it was one of those calls, actually. Um, I live upstate an hour and a half outside of the city, and I was coming back from a farm with groceries, and I get a call, and... I answer the phone and I hear, hey, Andy, it's Denzel. And it was in that, you know, inimitable voice. And I was like, hey, Denzel, how you doing? And I pulled the car off the road. And so he said, look, George is interested in interviewing you for editing on Ma Rainey, August Wilson's play that we're adapting. Todd Black, who's his producing partner, was also got, also got on the phone and we started talking. An interesting digression is that, and I pointed it out to Denzel, I had worked on a film very early in my career, the second film I had cut, a film called Power that Sidney Lumet had directed, which was Denzel's second film. Wow. It was actually, I think, my third film. And so we had some means of discussion and commonality, the the commonality, the Sidney world. And in that discussion, one of the things that came up was... um, that that was actually the first film that had ever been cut on a, a nonlinear editing system. So I have this little small footnote in film history as the first editor on to ever cut a nonlinear editing film. On what, what system? The system was the Netflix? montage. Oh, montage. No, no, yeah. montage. And I had also been, I was working with Sidney Lumet and he had 
He had done 230 live television shows before he was 33 and before he directed 12 Angry Men. So he was very comfortable with technology and he had heard about these systems that were being developed. Actually, it was the edit droid that Lucas was developing in the mm -hmm. montage that were the first two that were getting close to having feature film editing conversion software. And so he just asked me to keep an eye on them. And I talked to the montage people and they were very, very excited about the idea. So Sydney said, train on it and then we'll cut a scene and see if we can make it work. And so I did. And he liked the idea. And he was like, well, if they'll give us the system for free and if they'll have an engineer in the room next door and, you know, so in case anything goes wrong, sure. he he's very quick and worked at a tremendous pace. And he wanted to cut out in East Hampton, New York, where he had a summer home. And so we rented a little cottage out there. And so the first film was done with an engineer in the next room. And I was in there. And every night they would come in and download information and say, what worked, what didn't work, what do I need to change? And they had a team of software designers and code guys and gals. And in Massachusetts, they would say, oh, we can make it do this. And I would say, yeah, but I needed to do that. And this is how I work. And then the next morning, they'd come in with software patches. It was very bleeding edge in the technology. And later on, I had to decide whether or not I wanted to continue down that path. You know, I, of mm. course, everybody started calling me. The Lucas thing, the editor droid, they wanted to fly me and Sandy Morris, who was working with Woody Allen at the time on Zelig, I think, which wasn't a nonlinear editing system, but it was a, uh, uh, I forgot the name of their system, but it was to deal with all of the stock footage that they had. Well, another thing that was interesting is, of course, some of the more technologically both savvy and adventurous directors started calling me because I was literally the only film editor who had now had exposure to the electronic editing nonlinear. And what year was this? 1985. Yeah. Um, Leading edge. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> he rolls his eyes at the age. You know, one day my assistant came running in and he was like, don't freak out, but Stanley Kubrick's on the phone. And... <laughs> And I was sitting with Sydney, and my assistant Sam said, uh, "No, he doesn't want you, Andy. He wants to talk to Sydney." And apparently, they had been friends back in the fifties when Kubrick lived in New York. He was from the Bronx, and Sydney was like, "Stanley, Bubby, baby, darling, lovey, uh, I hear you're gonna finally get off your ass and make another film." And 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 Kubrick asked him about the system, and he said, "Well, you know, the truth is, I don't really know anything about the technology, except that I'm liking it and I'm working with it. But my editor, you know, knows everything about it." So Andy Monchin, Stanley Kubrick, and he handed me the phone, and Kubrick was both Sydney and Kubrick were the two people that were the biggest reason why. I was interested in filmmaking. My, mm. uh, my mom had dragged me out of school in Washington, D.C. to take me to see 2001 when I was 11 years old. And it was up on the Cinerama screen there. And it was a, a transportive experience for an 11-year-old. You have, I had no idea what movies could do. And it was just stunning to me. I'd watched mostly growing up. I would watch The Sound of Music. Those were the films, family films, although I did see West Side Story. So musicals were, yeah. we were taken to and some James Bond films, I remembered. But Kubrick became, you know, this sort of unattainable goal 
of the possibilities of the depth and of what film can explore mm. in in the human experience. And Sydney actually made a whole a series of films that also dazzled me, but I was older then in the mid seventies and I was watching Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon oh, yeah. and Network. And these were films that were so incredibly visceral and brilliant storytelling, but grab you by your shirt collar and pull you into a world that you had no escape from and didn't want to escape from. I remember watching Dog Day Afternoon for the first time and not being able to get out of my chair at the end of the screening. I mean, I just sat there for minutes trying to recover from that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then having had the opportunity to work for Sidney, to work with him, he really was instrumental in basically giving me a career. I got hired on a film called Prince of the City as an apprentice sound editor. It was an ambitious film, three-hour film that had not enough money. And... I was promoted pretty quickly to assistant sound editor, and I was given six reels of Foley's to do. So I had to record and cut the Foley's. So I was determined. I was pretty fresh out of college. I was maybe 23 years old, and I was really determined to have these be the best Foley's that ever existed. <laughs> so I worked around the clock seven days a week. I mean, one day they literally found me in front of a moviola asleep in the morning because I worked through the night. But I got every rustle, every footstep, everything that was for whatever scene they wanted and in my six reels. And I had barely met Sydney. I had just said hello to him. I've been introduced once briefly. So we get to the mix, which was at Trans Audio. There was a legendary mixer name of uh, Dick Vorsack. He was our, our mixer. And he kind of hated Foley's. The Foley's in those days weren't quite as good. And the ones coming out of Sound One were still a little bit, had a Sound One tone on them. And they were a little rough. And when they were mixed in properly, they were good. But he kind of hated them. And so what he tended to do was push up the Foley's really pretty loud on the first time watching a scene and the directors are like, oh, what's that? Lose that, you know, blah, blah, blah. and he would drop him out. So it was very frustrating for a nascent Foley editor, assistant <laughs> sound editor like me. So we get to a scene and my reel is up and it's one of the scenes where a prosecuting attorney is walking around a table with a bunch of other DAs and stuff. And he's walking around and I had these footsteps on the carpet, very subtle things as he's walking there. And Dick pushed it way up. And Sidney, who's very impatient at the mix, sits there and he plays solitaire at the side of the board. But he was always listening. And he looked up and he goes, what's that? What's that town? And Dick was like, those are the footsteps on the carpet. And he, Sidney was like, you don't hear footsteps on carpet. Lose them. So Dick <laughs> pulls them out. And I, I would say probably never assuming I would make it to be an editor. Um, <laughs> I had my sights on directing at the very beginning. And I got up and there was carpet in the stage behind where Sydney was sitting. And I got up and I started walking <laughs> back and forth behind Sydney for what must have been three or four minutes, walking back and forth. And finally, Sydney put down the cards and he said, Okay, you hear footsteps on carpet. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, 
And then he turned around to me and said, but not in my film. Oh, there we go. And, and I was like, Sydney, I just want you to know that if there is a sound that you could hear, you've got it. And you he kind of laughed at it. And we started talking and we sort of developed a friendship. I think it was a ballsy thing to do in hindsight. I know it was. I can't believe I did it. But he talked to the editor of the next film and they hired me as the assistant picture editor. Oh, great. And then on the next film, which was The Verdict, he said, listen, if you can hang in for one more film, I'm going to promote you to editor. And so that was a huge, huge thing. Oh, yeah. Years and years later, we remained friends till till the end of his life. But I was nominated for an Academy Award for The Sixth Sense. Yes. And I've said to people, you know, of course you tell everybody, oh, I lost, so I didn't get to thank you, you know. You tell that to 100 people, but you're not really going to do it in 45 seconds. But Sydney was one who I was really going to thank in a big way. And I wanted the billion people who saw that to know just how influential, obviously, he is to the industry, but to me personally. Which I will then tie this back to the Ma Rainey story, which George Wolfe, who's a renowned theater director, Angels in America. I mean, he's, I think he's got like 20 some Tony nominations and he, I know he's won it six or seven times. He's so accomplished. He ran the public theater and he reminded me more of Sydney than any other director I had worked with. Wow. That's a huge compliment. Oh, he's, uh, both of them were extraordinary artists. And look, you get to work with a lot of people that are really amazing artists in this business, if you're lucky. That's what you want. Some of them are also very original. So it's not just that they're brilliant, they're uniquely brilliant. Mm -hmm. And I feel that way about both Sydney and about George. They bring a uniqueness to it. Sydney grew up in the theater world. His father was a known actor and Sidney was a child actor. And he really knew theater, which allowed him, and I think you can tell from his film canon, it allowed him to really understand how to communicate with actors, what it was that the character at the time is experiencing and giving them ways to actually portray it, to play it, basically. And one of the other real gifts that Sidney gave me was that he allowed me, encouraged me to come to his rehearsals for his films. Wow. And what he tended to do, which was very play-like, he would rent out a space like a, the Ukrainian national home, which was down on the Lower East Side, and it had a huge open space where I guess they had... Yeah, that is all in his book, correct? His directing book sits on my bedside table, so I know about that. these. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he, he wrote that while we were doing Running on Empty. But he would then have his production designers and stuff tape off the basic size of the different rooms and locations that they were going to shoot in. And he would start a table reads, and he did two weeks of rehearsal if he was given the opportunity from the actors. And almost all the actors, knowing how important and good Sidney was at rehearsals, knew how valuable it was. I don't know how actors do it. I mean, I have the utmost respect for them, but I don't know. Without rehearsals, which so many times now directors are either not comfortable knowing how to really communicate with actors and or they just don't have the time. They The schedules don't allow for it or the availability of the actors. But Sidney insisted on it, sometimes even three weeks, but usually it was two weeks. And he would do table reads 
by the end of the, I think it was about the second week, maybe the second day of Tuesday, the second week, he would expect the actors to be off book, which was really tough for some actors, but they appreciated it. And so by then they were starting to do walkthroughs of the stages. They were blocking it. Sidney could tell his production designer and like I'm running on empty. I remember a conversation where he said, I'm going to shoot this from this angle and I need the stairway that you're building in the house. I need 12 steps. And the designer was like, no, I'm going to build the entire stairway. Sydney was like, no, no, I'm, I just need 12 steps. I know that. And of course, that's exactly what he needed. And they saved money because of that. So that was part of his ethos. And interestingly, I remember one thing about the power rehearsal with Denzel, who I just met there. He didn't remember me, of course. No one would expect that. But I remember Sydney saying to Denzel that his character is the kind of person who has bought top-of-the-line suits. And he will maintain his weight to make sure those suits fit perfectly. That was part of the mentality of who this character was. Anyway, I will say one small thing, a digression of a digression, was that Stanley Kubrick wanted me to come to England and work on Full Metal Jacket, which he did end up cutting on the montage, by the way. He bought mm. two of those systems. We had a series of conversations which was really amazing. But I was unable to go because he got delayed. He went six months over in their shoot. And I was waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And then my first son was born and I couldn't leave at that point. Mm -hmm. But Stanley Kubrick said to me, so tell me, how does Sidney get his actors to remember their lines? And I had one of those moments, you know, where you pull the phone away and you look and you go, wait, Stanley Kubrick is asking me how Sydney, I'm, I'm, I'm in a different world. Although you kind of imagine that you won't have the answers if you're in a conversation with these people. Yeah. Weirdly, because I had been working with Sydney in that capacity and because I was the only editor to work on an electronic system, I had all of the answers for the technical questions that he was asking. So that was kind of great. And so I told him the story of how Sydney rehearses such that his actors, and it doesn't matter who it was, the top actors or small secondary actors, yeah, the day players that he brought in, they all had to know their lines. Mm -hmm. And part of it is reputation. Sydney had this great reputation with actors. They loved him. And George, as well, has this amazing relationship through theater and the films that he's done. But to have worked with great, great actors, but also to know how to communicate. Jumping ahead in time, I went to Pittsburgh to meet with George. He, interestingly, did not want to meet over Zoom or Skype or whatever. Mm -hmm. He wanted to have an in-person meeting with all the people that he was hiring. So they flew me to Pittsburgh where they were going to be shooting. A small note, interestingly, this is the one of August Wilson's Pittsburgh cycle, the one every decade, 10 plays that he wrote about the Black experience in America. All of them take place in Pittsburgh, except this one, which takes place in Chicago. And it was the first one he wrote, too. It's a 1927 story. Anyway, I had a very good meeting with George and got hired for the job. They shot it in Pittsburgh. I was cutting it in New York. I asked him about, for the other editors, remote editing, if he was at all interested in that. And given that he didn't even want to remotely interview me, <laughs> I was not surprised when he said, no, 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 that's not the way I work. I got to be in there. I got to be right at the screen. I've worked with a whole range of directors, some who are comfortable, 
obviously now with COVID, things have changed. And that did change right toward the end of Ma Rainey. We had to switch over to a um, remote setup just about two months before we finished. So we were right toward the end of it. And we were just forced into it. There was no choice at that point. But we had pretty much locked the film. It was very, very close. So that takes us up to the beginning of basically the way we shot it. And I was cutting it at my house, actually. I've done remote editing because of my introduction, early introduction to the electronic editing, which, by the way, I went back and forth for a couple of films. I'd done Desperately Seeking Susan and Running on Empty on film. And other ones, What's Eating Gilbert Grape was the next one that was a hybrid montage system when they were trying to go digital, but they hadn't committed to it yet. And ultimately, that's what I think stopped them from being the system everybody embraced. Avid went fully digital and my old system's look like 1950s futuristic film stuff, if you look at them. But anyway, staying on point, then they started their shoot in Pittsburgh, and I was not on location. It was a fairly quick shoot. George was totally comfortable not having the editor there. He really didn't want to see anything until he saw the whole first assembly. We barely spoke about his approach to it. There was some conversations but it was pretty minimal. He was wildly preoccupied with all that was going on and trying to make it. It was a very quick shoot. They had limited time with Viola. They put together an astonishing cast. I mean, he delved into the world of theater for theater actors. You know, August Wilson's monologues are lengthy and complex. These are characters that have layer upon layer of complexity to who and what they are and all of their behavior. And that's the stuff editorially you're always tracking, trying to make sure that you are able to reveal to the audience or depict those moments when those characters are revealed. Anyway, when George did come in, finally after the end of shooting and I had done an assembly, which generally I get like one to two weeks after the shoot to finish up that assembly. And as all the other editors and you know, this is one of the low points in, in the whole process <laughs> for the director. Yes, Almost every totally. director I've worked with has said how much they love. And in fact, it's possibly their favorite part of the filmmaking process in editing because basically every day the film is getting better. If you're doing your job, it's improving, improving, improving. But that's the moment where you're looking at it for the first time and you realize you didn't make Citizen King. It's the famous Martin Scorsese quote about if you're not physically ill watching your first assembly, there's something wrong with you. Well, I told him a similar thing. I said, basically, if you're not suicidal, then it's a success. <laughs> and not only was he not suicidal, he was like, good, good. That was his reaction, which was a lot from George. And then he said, I'll be honest with you. It's the first time on any of the films that I've directed that I've been able to watch it all the way through on these first films. Wow, yeah. So I took that as a total victory and an accomplishment. You should. And there was so much going for this film from that starting point for his involvement in the editing. Well, I do have some questions just from the things that you've already said. One about the theatrical basis of the dialogue that's in here. Was it something that, the rhythms of those speech patterns, the rhythms of the writing 
did that guide you in your visual pacing or when you're trying to shape a performance? Was it something that you had to be very careful of? Is that specific rhythm? Well, I think that's a great question. And it's one of the things that jumps off the screen is the rhythm of their dialogue. These are musicians talking and they have an inherent rhythm. And George was really determined to have a kind of a banter that was authentic to musicians and embraced August's dialogue in a way that sounded completely naturalistic all at the same time. Interesting, I'll jump back to Sydney. One of the very first things he ever told me about editing was, he said, do me a favor. When you first put a scene together, he said, cut it to the rhythm that was written, rehearsed, and played on the stages. He said, before you start mucking it up and speeding it up <laughs> or doing all of those things, at the very first time, cut it to the rhythm that we played it. And sometimes you're cutting the sound and then the letting the picture cut where it happens because that or adjusting it, rolling it in that direction. But it was a hugely helpful thing that I still to this day try initially, which is to cut those scenes because a director, you know, and generally in my first cut, I do not cut out lines. Obviously, with something like Ma Rainey, that was even more important until we decided which lines were going to need to be excised. But in a lot of films, there's a lot of things that get said that are easily excisable. But I tend to, on the first cut, cut things tight to the dialogue, not being loose, but not cutting out dialogue. Because I think it is really, really important for directors to be able to watch the first cut in a way that they can judge the nature of the scenes and not be slapped in the face by edits. So I spend a lot, a lot of time on the first cuts. I really want them to have a kind of fluidity to them that the directors can get past the fact that they're seeing their images cut together for the first time and be able to say, oh, you know what? That material, that stuff is being said over here, or this is communicated there, or wow, the structure is all architecturally, we have a big problem in the second act. And those kinds of future questions is what I want them asking initially so that as we start to go through it, we're not making changes that are based on a false response because they got stopped by the editing, you know, that, oh. that it was so roughly edited that they can't really judge it. For me, it's the hardest part of the process, cutting together the first assembly, yeah. because I feel I can do everything. I, uh, sound is a really important thing to make sure that I don't have sound bumps from shot to shot that distract. I'm easily distracted mm -hmm. by that kind of stuff. I don't tend to cut with music, but occasionally there's montages that kind of rhythm of the music will help mm -hmm. dictate, obviously. But while I'm cutting, I will then, after I do that, try to put some score on to help the director again watch the movie in a way that maybe simulates the experience of actually watching it from a non-directorial point of view, from a viewership. I feel that's really important. There are times I've had films, most of the time, the first cut is really hard to stomach as we discuss. But other times, if you're already going, wow, there's stuff there. There's really something there. You know you're ahead of the game. You know that not only are you further down in the editorial process, but that if this is working in its roughest form, there's a chance that it can be really special. I remember that when 
Lasse Hallstrom, who I've worked with a number of times, he directed What's Eating Gilbert Grape. And we watched the first cut of that. He sat back and had a real smile on his face and was like, ooh, there's really something here. This is something. And I knew what he meant. He had shot a lot of stuff on that film. In fact, a small side story, Peter Hedges, who wrote the book and then the screenplay that Gilbert Grape was based on, I didn't know him, but I got a call from him. And I went down to the set, they were shooting it in Texas, to meet with Lhasa and say hi to everybody just during the first week of shooting. And I got a call from Peter and he was very upset. And he was like, can you can you meet me in the um, the hotel breakfast? I, I got some things I have to talk to you about. And he was a first time writer. And he was like, they're not shooting my script at all. It's all ad-libbed. It's not what I was writing. And I just don't know. It's all over the place. And I had just cut a scene that I knew he was referring to, one of their cafe scenes. And what Lhasa had done was he had had them ad-lib a whole bunch of takes to get really comfortable, to have them friends, old friends, understanding, interrupting. And then in the last takes, he would bring them back to the script and then they would do it again on each side. But Peter was watching all the dailies and he thought it was a disaster. And I said, I asked Loss, I said, can I bring Peter into the cutting room and just show him my first cut of that scene? And he was like, oh, sure, sure, no problem. So I brought in Peter and he, he looked at the scene and he started crying. And he was like, oh my God, it's great. It's going to work. And he hugged me. <laughs> we, we, by the way, remained friends for years and years, have remained friends and worked together again. And uh, he's directed and written. And his son, Lucas, has become a major actor and unbelievably talented actor. So anyway, people are unaware necessarily, can be unaware of what goes into the editing process. And what it is you're choosing. In that instance, Lhasa was like, he gave me a lot of flexibility in trying to make the scenes work, even in the first cut. He wanted me to, to be adventurous and try things out, even from the very beginning. One of his producers, Al Blomquist, said, it's jazz filmmaking. <laughs> you got to think of it that way. And of course, Leonardo, who was not the original Arnie, he wasn't cast originally, mm. Lasso was during rehearsals and he wasn't happy with the actor that they had cast, who was a well-known actor. And he called me and he was actually a bigger star than anybody in the film. And he called me and said, well, we've decided to go with somebody new, somebody else. And it's, I said, oh, who, who? He said, his name is Leonardo DiCaprio. And I was like, who is that? I've been, I said, it's a great name. I've never heard of him. He said, well, he hasn't been in any films yet. And he did one film that hasn't come out yet, This Boy's Life. And then I saw him on the first day of shooting, a scene that's not actually in the final film, but Lasso put him in front of the big grocery store competition and it has an electronic door opening and closing and people coming in and out. And he just put him there and had him react to all the people as they came out and interact with them. And I was like, who is this kid? Who, who, what, what is He's unbelievable. He was like, yes, yeah, you like him, man, don't you? And I was like, <laughs> yes. And he was one of the more obviously extraordinary talents. And not that long ago, I saw they had an anniversary screening of Gilbert Grape at Sundance, um, the director's lab. And I was so worried that because of how big a star he had become and that you would watch it and you, it would be a distraction of some, you, you would no longer be able to see the film. But I was stunned, you know, 10 seconds into his performance, you're already not thinking about 
Leo, you are thinking about Arnie and this incredible character that he created and this language that he invented with his hands and his, you know, it's also, it's one of my favorite films. It's hard to have your own films be, you know, hard to judge them, yeah. but it's one that I always, I was always loving. I love that. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Andrew Monsheen. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit. This week, FilmTools is offering Art of the Cut listeners 10% off thousands of products when shopping on FilmTools.com. All you have to do is enter code AOTC10 at checkout. That's AOTC10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase on FilmTools.com. So whether you need a GTEC hard drive or an Airy Sky panel, make sure to head over to FilmTools.com and check out with discount code AOTC10 to get 10% off your next equipment purchase. And now back to my interview with Andrew Monsheen. You mentioned that first rough cut, and I got to just ask you about ego in that because you're a talented editor, Oscar nominations, tons of big films, and yet you know that when a director is watching the editor's cut, they're going to hate it. Now, that is hard for me (laughs) to accept. It is, and it's why I kind of tend not to call it the editor's cut, except, you know, technically you have to call that. I call it the first assembly. And I try not to have an ego about it. It's hard, and you want them to really be surprised and like it. But you have to be prepared that it's not what they imagined their material to be. Mm -hmm. As you get better over the years, as you've done it more, and more importantly, if you've worked with the director multiple times then they're much more comfortable in it. You're not sweating it. It also sometimes reveals something, which to me, one of the most important things in an editor-director collaboration is that you view the material in a similar way, but not exact. Obviously, you have kind of a parallax view of the stories that's being told. If you're diametrically different in your the way you see the story and what's being said, and you're in deep trouble. But if you have that slight parallax view you have the opportunity to push each other really in a collaborative fashion into a direction that's like, oh, you know, I never thought of approaching the scene that way, which is something that happens in this. So you say, no, I wanted to, or she'll say, I wanted to try this. And then I could show them that. And they say, well, but you know, I kind of like you had something interesting there. And it's like, yeah, I, I see what you're saying, but it doesn't really work unless you do this. And you go back and forth and back and forth. And ultimately, you end up with something that neither of you would have accomplished individually. But as a collaboration, you end up in a place that is the most satisfying, that that's the ideal anyway. Mm -hmm. And when it happens and you're able to solve all the problems that are inherent in films, it's incredibly gratifying. And you have to recognize that while you contributed to it, it wasn't only your doing. That's where the ego, it's a harsh lesson to learn that you're like, I don't like that idea at all. That's never going to work is what you're saying in your head while you're doing this. And then it's like, oh, actually, hmm, (laughs) you know what? That actually works. And you have to be prepared to admit that because you can't let the ego get in the way or you're going to inhibit 
some aspect of the progress of the film and it's not going to get to the place that it can be. And in fact, so much of that first cut for me is about trying to push you down the field and get it to a place where from there you can get to that next level and that you're not going back. I mean, you're always going back. I don't know what the percentage of final edits that there are in that first cut, but it's pretty small, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you're lucky if you're 15 or 20% of the final cut stuff. It was there in that first cut on a feature when you have time in these in television stuff, it's a little different because you're under so much of a a tighter constraint and um, time is time is always the issue. You always run out of time. I don't think I've worked on a film where it's very few films where like, okay, we're not helping it anymore. Now we can give it up. Um, At that stage of the film, my rule is, don't do the change unless it really clearly is an improvement mm-hmm. because there's a tendency to want to change something to change something. And at that stage, it makes it fresh again for you, which, as you know, as an editor, is one of the biggest battles you're facing. Basically, how do you keep fresh to the material? And it was helpful in Ma Rainey as well. We did manage right before the pandemic sort of hit to get a real preview. We went down to Atlanta and screened the film for an audience. And I have a mixed reaction to previews. One is that it's one of the most helpful things for an editor to sit with an audience. You can almost miraculously, magically, you are able to experience the film in a way that you haven't for the longest time. Yeah. You, know, you refill the os- film. Exactly. You're laughing, you're tearing up through an osmosis through the crowd, which is the magic of going to a theatrical movie with a crowd which is why it's so important we keep that alive, which is why Christopher Nolan is so right. We have to fight for it tooth and nail. So it's enormously valuable. It's even more valuable, by the way, in a comedy than it is in a drama. The timing is almost action film oriented in a comedy. You have Mm -hmm. to have the real precision. Every frame matters. And how you set up a joke and pay it off. And if they're laughing, they get it. If they're not, they're not. And you have to fix it. So you did the screening with Ma Rainey. We did the screening with Ma Rainey and we learned things. And one of the things was that it was funny delving into one of the most tragic elements of this whole experience is, of course, Chadwick's death. And it is it is beyond tragedy. I mean, he was such an enormously, enormously talented, gifted man who right up to the end was giving his heart out in this performance. When you see it, one of my fears for the film, for his legacy, is that people won't be able to separate their knowledge of the fact that he passed away shortly after, and this is his final film. Because of the pandemic, nobody's really going to be able to see it in the theater. Netflix, who was completely supportive of us all the way along, said to us from the beginning, we want you to cut this and approach this as if it's a feature film in every respect. He said, there might be some delivery requirement differences, but other than that, every respect. So we were doing the previews and we learned from it because of the pandemic, the humor of the film is harder for people to take in. I think people watching this at home won't get to quite, I'm hoping they will, maybe they will, experience the joy of these compatriots in this journey that these musicians are on and just how funny it is. That's when Tenzel first called me. He said, we did this read through and the film is so much funnier than I even knew. 
He, by the way, has got permission to try to turn all 10 of August Wilson's century Pittsburgh stories into films. And I heard Viola say that without Denzel, this would never have happened. This is just not the kind of thing that without somebody of his stature championing it, it wasn't going to happen. And, you know, I'm so excited. I loved Fences, too, by the way. I mm -hmm. thought he did an amazing job in directing and acting in that. To have the opportunity to work on material that is as brilliant as this is. And I know there's a lot of hyperbole about scripts and directors and actors and stuff, but obviously it was justified in this. This is mm -hmm. a brilliant adaptation. I mean, it's a two and a half hour play that he adapted into in like a 90 minute film. The rhythm that we were talking about of the acting was one that George was committed to. He really wanted the actors to have this fast clip, this comfort level of they were riffing and, and he wanted me to make sure that we were inside it, that we were a partner inside that rehearsal space with them so that we weren't outside it watching some of my initial cut stuff. I wanted to make sure that we understood the geography I was going through on a, on a technical basis. And he was like, look at it. This is a stuffy, confined room and the fan doesn't work and they can't breathe. But we're inside with them was his directorial edict. And when it came to rhythms, I did follow what they had shot, but then we started to compress and compress, but always with a sort of musicality. George is also a genius with music. And we had Brantford Marsalis do the score and do the recordings of all the Ma Rainey songs, which was fantastic. I love Brantford. He is just an amazing musician. And I went down to New Orleans when we recorded the score. I'd been a music editor at some point as well. It was great to go down there. His father, by the way, Ellis Marsalis, was a legendary jazz musician. But also what he had done was after Katrina had devastated New Orleans, he had built a music academy and recording space in the midst of the district that was hit hardest. And he even had them building housing around there for musicians to come and to help renovate that area. And that's where we did the recording. And Brentford's father came to two of the sessions, which was just great. And his brothers came. And I love the music recording sessions. They're one of my favorite parts of the entire process when it really comes to life. Music never sounds better than it does then. And we literally left New Orleans four days before the Mardi Gras really took off, which is just when the pandemic mm -hmm. really hit and hit hard in New Orleans. So we were just ahead of it coming out of there. And tragically, Brantford's father passed away, not from COVID, but a few months later. Mm. So anyway. Looking at, you were talking about the rhythms of the actors and trying to yes. stay out of the way of that. And when you did need to do some crafting that you needed to stay in the same rhythm, we've got this scene of them where they're talking about style. And can you right. talk a little bit about that scene and how you made the decisions that you made and a little bit about the rhythms of the dialogue in that scene? Hard to uh, remember exactly how we approached it. I would say that while George pushed the actors to keep the tempo up of the scenes, oftentimes, and I think that was an example, that scene is another example of it, we went back in and compressed and compressed. And it's a kind of familiarity. You have to trust that people will keep up with it. 
But at the same time, what you're doing is you're forcing people to keep up with it. Arthur Miller had a great quote. He said, the silences should speak louder than the words or get rid of them. And it's one of those things that I keep in the back of my head, too, in mm -hmm. these things. You're thinking, you're hoping that the silent reactions are powerful punctuations or clear-cut turns in character or revelations. But you better make well sure that they are, because there's nothing more dangerous to a film than to be boring, to be tedious. And not that this ever was going to be tedious, but its theatrical roots, I'm, I'm going to say, could show a little bit more. I feel like if you weren't taking the risk to really make the language musical. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting, and I'm trying to remember that clip to know what we did score-wise, but when we started to score some of these things, we ended up with problems because the dialogue was so musical that there wasn't room yeah. for score. And so we went back in a couple of places and a couple of scenes and opened them back up again to allow Branford to have space for a score because the emotion of it, the story of it was enhanced by having some score. But it's rare in films that I have that kind of problem where you really are just ripping along through the dialogue and it has its own rhythm that there's less room for score than you would want. And you're trying to score something. And if it's not just Patty, if then punctuations are hitting in places where there's punctuation. So we literally had to go back and isolate those spots that we wanted musical punctuations to. So we would send the scene to Bradford. He would try to do it. We would recut the scene based on that and then send it back to him to try to re rework the music. Viola did not sing. She was not the singer of the songs, except for one that she did a cappella. And she had told George that she didn't think she had the musical chops to do it. And so Brantford got a singer who of some renown, her name is Escaping Me, Mamie, and I'm, uh, I'm forgetting who it was. I never met her. She did these great recordings and Viola did them as playback and sung to them on the shoot. And it was a long process of us trying to make her stuff sound like it came from Viola and sunk with what it was. We did editorially. We tried picture editing wise to make sure that it was in sync. The music would then adjust the lines. We could time warp now allows you to do a manipulation of speed of performance, which we used a lot, by the way, or some in, in the picture cutting split screens we were doing all the time. And then we would take the music and then the singer went back and re-recorded some of the singing to match what Viola had done energy-wise and projection-wise. And then we cut that and then we went back through the process again. Oh my gosh. It was so important. If it looked like she was either doing it to a playback or it wasn't her, it's going to take away from people experiencing it. Because there's mm -hmm. first of all, there's not a ton of singing in it. But what there is, is crucial to this story. I mean, it defines yeah. Ma's talents and power over an audience, which gives her some power in a powerless world for a Black singer in the 1920s. And we've kind of got a clip that's what you're describing. There's a scene where she's singing what, the Moaning Blues or something. Uh, like, yes, and that's where we started the story. Yes. Well, um, th that's different. We started the story with the guys talking about style and they're in a rehearsal room bragging about who's, right. who's got the most talent and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
That's a great scene. Can you look at that scene? I texted it or I emailed it. Yeah, you no, know, I actually I remember you, the scene now. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, in that scene, what was interesting dramatically was that here's a guy who's trying to separate himself from these other guys. There's a lot of trash talking amongst people of a group, and he's trying to say he's the one who's the real talent in the group. And what was one of the things that we wanted to communicate was a they didn't they didn't buy it. You're not you're nobody yeah. Bolden. And then he wanted to show that he was literally writing the music right now. What you don't quite a show because they're actually trying to hide it, but they're not really great at it, is that they can't read music. Interesting. Actually, Toledo can, but he's the only one. And even Cutler, who's the leader of the band of the band members, and he makes a show of it. But then he's dismissive of it as if he's dismissive of the music. That scene is a is part of the editorial approach of that scene was to try to get the physicality of the flow of what was going on. So inside that, you're trying to have each cut have a little more energy to it, to derive it through, to have a kinetic quality to it. And you're constantly trimming the uh, dialogue based on that. In the other scene that you mm -hmm. were talking about, the moaning goes, yep. that's the beginning of, I saw the clip, uh, they did an edit in it, by the way. It starts in the tent in Georgia. And then what they cut out was the great migration that is part of the nature of this story of what has gone on, which is a little different than people's understandings and expectations. There is a perception, a historical perception that... A lot of people migrated from the South, a lot of Blacks migrated from the South for great economic opportunities and treatment in the North. And indeed, that is what was promised, that in the South, they were being treated badly and being cowered in the corners on racial issues. And yet what we're seeing is that Ma had staked out a place there in this. You see it in how she commands the stage and the tents and how she is accepted in that world in a profound way. She's heralded. She's a star there. Then there's this montage that's not in the clip of the idea of this great migration that ends up in her performing in a theater in Chicago, the same song. It's the second half of that song. And it's done in a flashier way. It's expanded to include dancing women. And we finally introduce her band members. And we start to see the thread of the story, the, the kernel of the key drama. We see Levy trying to take the stage, trying to take the spotlight, literally with a solo, and her shutting that down. Uh, we see him eyeing her girlfriend. And we see Cutler seeing her, seeing him see the girl. And they're all reacting. We're starting to set up the dynamic of this film. And editorially, we stayed with Ma and the sort of black church feeling of the first tent, which is she singing and they're, they're reacting. There's an interactive quality with the audience, as opposed to then in the second show in Chicago, the audience isn't even seen. You see no audience. It's all about them on stage. And it's much flashier and more, it's a little more upbeat. But the cutting has now requires us to really be inside it in a way. We're no longer reacting with the audience. We are now reacting within the band and how they're defined. And it's punchier and it's bigger. 
But the whole sequence, I'm not sure if it ends with it, actually ends with what a lot of the migratory results were. There's a huge sweatshop of sewing machines, and it's all being manned by Black women who were, and men shoveling coal into endless furnaces. And in a way, I think what George was saying was that the nature of this was that they had become cogs in the wheel. They were dehumanized in a different way. The other thing you were talking about, the editing of that scene, the the moaning blues, you had a huge amount of story to try to get through in editing in a very short amount of time. Because you do get the sense, oh, the trumpet player's trying to step out. Ma's not happy. He's checking out the girlfriend. The girlfriend's checking him out. She's wondering what Ma's thinking. The band's trying to figure out what's going on. It's a lot of stuff going on in that scene. We did spend quite a bit of time trying to make that work. And at first, George was determined not to ever use the front shots of the band of the whole stage, because he really wanted to be inside and not do it. But the front shots were so fantastic that we kept coming back to him going, you know, we had to do that. But you're right. It's not just that. We have to do it all musically, too. Right. So Levy has to do something that turns Ma's girlfriend, her attention. So he had to do something musically. So we had to find the right moment within the piece to make that work. It was a bit of a Rubik's Cube. Of every time you're trying that, well, now we don't have this beat for Ma. We don't have this opportunity. But as we got it, we could tell that there were sections of it that were really crackling. And you're like, okay, we know that part of it really does work. Yeah, and and you need the geography of it, too. I mean, that's another thing. You need to know where's the girlfriend compared to the trumpet player compared to Ma. The audience needs to know that stuff. And then you've got the reverse shots, which show the spotlight swinging back and forth. Like, that's an important part of the story. Uh, That's true. I will say that while one of the spotlight shots was a real spotlight, the other one we had to, in order to make the timing work the way we wanted to, we had to create that, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so that's visual effects stuff. And we had um, a small number of really important visual effects in this story. Mm -hmm. It was crucial that Chicago looked and felt like it did. In fact, one major change that George made to the story was that in the play version, it took place in the winter and he changed it to summer and wanted the oppressive heat of it to be palpable inside the room. You could see the smoke in the room. You could feel the lack of air movement and the pressure that that puts on people. And on Maj, you know, they're all sweating and it added a physical arduousness to what they had to do. And, it, you know, I think it ramped up uh, on, uh, emotionally. The, um, emotional, it's just every little thing as you're putting the clamps on this story, which, yeah, you, you know, you'll see. There's a scene like that that the studio provided, which is Ma talking about that the blues is understanding life or something. And you can yeah. see how sweaty her breasts, her chest, her face, she's hot. A fan's yes. going next to her. Tell me a little bit about that scene because you almost stuck with a oneer. I don't know how close the edit of that is from what you did, but it's almost a oneer, which is a great performance, right? Which is, I would think, one of the reasons why you stick with that. But you also cut to reactions. Yeah, no, in this instance, look, these are all the choices that you make, whether or not you are going to enhance. You have to have a reason to make a cut. Yep. And when you have a really great performance, 
you have to have a real justification for and know that it is enhancing the performance because you risk subtly taking some of the energy away. And you have all kinds of actors. And some actors take some time to get up to speed. When they deliver it, they deliver it, and then that's it. And it's your job to make sure you're patient enough and you're using them in the right time and the right camera angle and maximize it. It's a lot of what you do. Mm -hmm. Viola is so talented. I mean, really amazingly talented. What she would do is she would do four or five takes and give you four or five really valid, credible, honest interpretations of the same speech. So then... You can't you, intercut them, right? <laughs> it's well, hard to. you know, it's sometimes hard to. you do, sometimes yeah. you do. And yeah. you're like trying to get to a place where she's being more open to something or she's not, or she decides to change. All of the beats that go along within a scene of character revelation. So, you know, I felt an enormous amount of pressure to make sure I used and got the best performance and the best moment and... As the film went along, you can't be too precious. Editors are not so precious with the material. I mean, I know that there's films that I look at of other editors and I think, oh, my God, don't touch a frame. And they're like, yeah, we never really got that to work. You know, you listen to the commentary <laughs> and it's like, you know, I always wanted to go back and, and we kind of, and I feel that way about films that I've done. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, I, that's the best we could do. But if we were allowed now, if I had time warp now, I would have changed that or... They say it's like they take it out of your hands. You know, yeah. you're never like finished and ready. No film is um, ever finished. It's just abandoned. Abandoned. Yes. Well, in this regard, I felt an enormous pressure because I knew that this was this was really, really good. And I don't want to be patting myself on the back. Hmm. I just knew that there were so many good elements to this. And you're always hoping that there's something that even elevates it beyond. There's something magical almost that happens. You end up with some element that's unexpected. And maybe it was getting Chadwick at this moment in his life when he was revealing his soul and determined to reveal his soul in this character and find a character that is written so that you want it. You embrace it and you are transfixed by it. So I felt a pressure to that. Obviously, I didn't know that Chadwick was ill, but I felt that with all of the performances that it was incumbent on me to not accept something that I thought was, well, that's good. It's like, how can we make it better? Is there a line we can replace? Is there a way that I can subtly change that angle? Can I blow it up a little bit? And that's the thing that will allow us to be at the place and time where it really, it just sings. And that's the goal. And one hopes you accomplish it. We'll see. Any thoughts on structure or what happened between your first assembly and the film we see? Things that you realized needed to be changed or the director realized needed to be changed? Well, that tends to be a really driving force in a lot of films, the architecture or structure of the story. In this particular film, there was very little structural change. There was a few things that we did. We moved a scene when they went out to the deli into a different spot subtly. Some of the back and forth with down in the basement. We moved Levy's introduction in Brownsville when he goes to buy the shoes. We actually moved that up earlier. It had been later. Originally, it was written to be in the middle of before he shows up in the basement right before that it was going to come out of that and then he shows up with the shoes 
But it was a little bit late and people seemed a little confused by us cutting there and that he's like, what? He's over there. We had to allow them to understand that it was a flashback and that he was going to then show up. So instead, we played it more like in real time. We cut to them when they're outside before they're even having come in. And that allowed us to introduce all the characters, not have the question of timing to it. And the big negative that we worried about there was that we spent so much time in that basement initially that, you know, one worried that we would overstay our welcome there. Mm. What happened was people have said to us that, no, we love these guys. We love being with them. And even though it is a while before we get to Ma, the added opening that it's not part of the play, obviously, with her singing in the tent, had already introduced her, given us a shot of it, and then with the Great Migration. So it's not that we had a fill of Ma, but we kind of were already grounded in who this character was going to be and what kind of influence she was going to have. And so we were able to go with them into the basement, into the rehearsal space, and relax into it, even though we weren't going to let them dawdle. And for those that haven't seen it like me, but I know the play, they're waiting for her to show up. That's correct. So they're in the basement. It's a claustrophobic spot. And they're like, where is she? We're supposed to be recording. So you're spending a but lot of time. they're rehearsing. They start yeah. rehearsing. Yeah. That's the idea. And that's where you start to understand the nature of what Levy wants for this story. Wants in this recording, which is to record his versions. I mean, this is also a time when music was changing and it's a fissure of the newer, jazzier style that Levy represents and wants to depict and is actually talented, very talented, and not just in performance, but in writing it, and wants to break through. So you get a sense of that. You also get a sense that the producer of both the studio and Ma's manager embrace it as well. They think that this will sell better than what Ma's getting a little bit long in the tooth style was going to do. They really wanted to do that. They knew it would sell records, but they could sell even more records if they had a jazzier version of it or a little more danceable version, upbeat, instead of what they refer to as Ma's jug band music, you know, <laughs> which is very Southern thing and is yeah. what Ma does. And yeah, I won't give anything away. Got it. And one other question. Did you either read the play or see the play before you cut the film? I did not. I did not do either. I didn't have an opportunity to see the play, but in some ways... I wanted to be just fresh to the material. This was a film version of this. And they had spent an enormous amount of time cutting down the script of the play to what they presented. And I didn't want to, even though there's no doubt that editing is an extension of writing, is maybe the final rewrite of it. And that there's a lot of films where that are based on books and stuff that I would say, let's go back to the source material and grab this voiceover or do this. Or is there any way you can shoot that moment? Because that really does. There was no opportunity for that in this. They were off and running. They had a very limited time to shoot it. And I happened to love the material. I thought that it really worked. And I didn't feel like we had to go back and shoot anything new to make it work. So there was no reshoots for this. Got it. 
I've kept you for a very long time, and so I really appreciate your time. I think, is there anything you want to talk about with the film or the editing of this particular film? Haven't you? Of course, by now I want to talk forever about this <laughs> stuff. I can talk endlessly. Well, and, I don't want to impose on you. I can ask questions endlessly, too. So, At this point, actually, I have to get back to work, okay. which is what everybody knows and says, and, you know, we're worker bees. And Absolutely. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Stephen. So nice to meet you. And I really greatly appreciate it. I enjoyed this thoroughly. That's it for Out of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Andrew Monsheen, ACE. Also, thanks to Jake Gum, who edited this episode using Adobe Audition, and to Paul McKenna for mixing and mastering. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Holfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend.